Hey, y'all. Good morning. All right, we're going to be in Revelation 2, 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. Y'all pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for this place. We thank you for your word. Uh, we pray that the uh, spirit would be with Lance as, uh, as he interprets your word and teaches us, Lord. I pray that any, um, any fog that surrounds uh, some of the teachings and revelations would be lifted. I pray that the uh, wisdom and the meaning would be forever imprinted on our hearts and our souls um, so that we would uh, leave here forever changed. We pray that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand, and minds to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Will. Appreciate you, brother. He's got that California smooth style of like, hey, y'all. And he just, he just relaxed everybody in the room. That's the beautiful thing. Jesus does not do that with today's word. Uh, instead, he comes at you with a double-edged sword. And you've got to ask yourself, why? What is going on? If you are new here or uh, perhaps you're uh, foreign to the journey of Lent that we're in, we're in Lent. As we're journeying through Lent, we're following Jesus into the desert just as he did in Matthew 4. When he went into the desert, he denied himself of simple pleasures, and it was there that he was both led by the Spirit and tempted by the devil. And so Lent really is this season for us to identify places in our hearts where we've just gone astray. We've, we've begun to start thinking and, and compromising and become syncretistic, if you will, in our hearts, feathering in other lesser beliefs, uh, beliefs with the worship and the worth of Jesus, ultimately. And so it's in that place that we're, we're going through these um, short words from Jesus himself to these historical churches in what is known as modern-day Turkey. We started on Ash Wednesday when we talked about the church at Ephesus, right? They were a strong church, a doctrinally strong church. Um, they even defended the pulpit and the teachings in some ways against false apostles. And yet Jesus comes at them and says, but you have lost your first love, your devotion to me. You can do all the great ministry you want. You can have a great, obedient family even. But if you don't love me, it's all for naught. And then last week we talked about the church um, what was that church? The church at Smyrna. And that was the faith that was under pressure, right? They were, there was no rebuke to that church, but he was preparing them for the persecution that was to come. And he says, prepare yourselves because the pressure is going to mount more than you'd ever hoped. You'll be put in prison. Stay 
faithful. And now today, to the third church we now read, to the church at Pergamum. The church at Pergamum. And if I had to, uh, if I talked about like the first love church or the faith that was under pressure church, now this church is the compromised church. This church at Pergamum. It reminded me of C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. If you don't know that book, I would highly recommend, be a great opportunity for you to dig into the ways that the, the enemy tempts you into temptation. Go read or listen to the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. The idea there is that there's a senior demon named Screwtape, and he is training a junior demon, Wormwood, how to tempt believers to fall away from their enemy, which is our God. These are demons writing to one another, trying to figure out how do we successfully get believers to just not care about Jesus. In seminary, I was a part of a spiritual formation group, and one of the assignments that we had throughout the semester was uh, ultimately this, write yourself a screw tape letter. If you had a demon assigned to you, how would he then train a junior demon to come after you? What would be your weaknesses? What would be some places that he would start to attack and come after you? And if you want to know what my screw tape letter is, uh, you should buy me lunch. No, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you because I think it's relevant, especially coming off of a weekend with the men's retreat where like I, we heard this over and over and over again. My screw, if the demon was training another demon on how to get me to disqualify myself, to take myself out, it would be to, to rely on Lance. Just do it with your power and your strength, the way that you know how to do it. Prayer pretty much is meaningless, you see, because I can kind of do it. I can do enough to be satisfied with little crumbles from the king's table. Why sit and feast and depend on him to do the work when I can do pretty good by myself? That's the screw tape letter for me. Just depend on myself, start to just drift ever so slightly away. And so it just, it, it, it's very fitting, my own screw tape letter, with this syncretistic, compromising church here at Pergamum. But what would your screw tape letter be about for you? I think it's worthy of listening to and worthy of thinking about if I had to redo that overwhelming Lent guide, that would be your thing to do this week, but I can't redo it. I'll put it before you. See, the question really is, where are you tempted to compromise your commitment to Jesus? I don't know what that is for you. It's probably something different for you than it is for me, but that's where the enemy is going to come after you, where you know you've left little, you've left the doors unlocked in your hearts. Like the doors are locked and, uh, in some places away from the enemy, but there's some places where the door is shut, but you've kind of left it unlocked on purpose. You're, not, you're okay if, he, if the enemy invades that part of your heart a little bit because it gives you a little pleasure, gives you a little comfort, gives you a little taste, something that you want right here and right now. Where have you become syncretistic by trying to have the best of both worlds? I want Jesus, but I also want the American dream. Can you have both? good question to ask. Jesus is fine, but I'd also like a little bit of this. You see, what dangers lurk within your walls? Not out there, y'all. The enemy that is, is going to come against us, as we'll see with Pergamum, it's not necessarily out there in the world, although it is. 
it's also right here within us, within the tent of this church, of your heart, and in your family, we've let the enemy infiltrate and come right in like a Trojan horse, and we've celebrated its coming, only for it to sneak in behind the walls and sneak in and snipe us. So Jesus makes this clear that it's not out there, it's also within our own walls, so to speak, of our own heart, and that's exactly where he gets to with the faithfulness of this church at Pergamum. It's not all doom and gloom for them. They actually have stood pretty firm. In fact, that's their, his commendation, is that they have been a faithful witness, right? Uh, let's just read, again, Revelation 2.13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, you know the place where Satan dwells. It's a pretty intense part of the world. Um, as a matter of fact, um, Pergamum is a real place. And you have to start thinking to yourself, okay, why is it that Jesus calls this place Satan's throne? Well, we could start with Antipas's story. Antipas was the, was the pastor of the church at Pergamum. And um, he was known as a healer. He was known as a faithful pastor. And as he... He pastored in the city of Pergamum. Uh, the city officials didn't take lightly to the fact that he was a healer and that he was drawing people away from, from, from the temples and from cultic worship, and they were coming to find their hope in Jesus, and they didn't quite like that. Matter of fact, he would not bow down to the cultic worship of, of worshiping the emperor, where they did have a throne there. He would not bow down in that way, and so because he would not bow down, he stayed faithful what the people of Pergamum did and the officials of Rome did is they took him in one of their many temples and they boiled him alive. And he died. Our brother Antipas waits in heaven and longs for us today to be faithful, to not fall into the same traps that they were tempted in that day, maybe a little bit different here in this day, but certainly not to be tempted and not to compromise we could start with that and go, okay, let's Satan's throne. Clearly, they're just boiling the pastors alive there. There's also some really historical cool stuff that I've just got to put before you. Pergamum was perched atop a high rock. And so I've got some pictures for you about the ruins of Pergamum. The first one is, is like from the top, right? So you can see Pergamum. Look at this. It's on top of this hill where Jesus looks down from heaven and says, that's Satan's throne. You can see where Jesus, in his perspective, like over the theater, Satan would just kind of dangle his legs, and then he would sit at the top where all these altars were to false gods. Another angle uh, from, uh, from, from down low, like you see how tall this place is. This is the way on the way to Pergamum. You see the theater then, look at the perspective about how high this place really is, this ancient city. of You can go and visit there, actually. It's in Turkey. We call it something different, not Pergamum. But you can see how God's looking down and going, man, you are Satan's throne. You're sitting atop everything, and you really think that you're in control of this. It's this seat of power of the enemy. You can see it with Antipas's life, but also on top here, what you would find, there's some very interesting things about Pergamum, just very quickly. At the top of this city, on, right uh, on, the, on the top of, of where the theater is, there was a library that rivaled that of Alexandria. There was 200,000 volumes, all handwritten, 
that were in parchment in the library of Pergamum. There was a temple for, uh, for emperor worship, as I mentioned. Caesar, Caesar Augustus was, was, uh, was worshipped there as God and as Lord. There was an acropolis of temples to Dionysus, to Athena, to Zeus. Actually, uh, the, the museum in Berlin took the throne of Zeus, the altar of Zeus, and they took it and put it in their library, in their museum. That's, that's it. That's it. They took it, put it in a library in Berlin, and preserved it. So this is literally the altar of Zeus. And you can see this story wrapping around the altar of Zeus, which is all these Greek gods and goddesses defeating all the other gods. That's the story that's being told all around this altar of Zeus, like, like normal people just sitting there. You can see then how it's a throne of Satan. He's sitting there, he's got his hands there, his feet are dangling over the theater. You can see how God is seeing this and seeing really what's going on in this city. But it's not just Zeus or Athena or Dionysus. Also another god, a Greek god, Asclepios. Sure. Anyways, this is what his temple looks like. This is the artist's depiction. But I want you to see this as Satan's throne. I want you to see the imagery of Asclepios. Do you see this God? What is he holding? But a staff with a serpent. God is being very specific here about how he is labeling this city. Okay, so this, the theory of Asclepios, the way that you would worship him, is that if you were sick, you would go into the, to the temple of Asclepios, and the priest would begin to start kind of prophesying over you going, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed. Don't doubt. Believe. Is this sounding familiar? Okay. As they went in, if it got really crazy and they were continuing to not get healed, the idea was to s- spend the night in this temple, and the ministers here, the priests would go, and they would, they would try to heal you by the power of the serpent, Asclepios, the power of the god of Asclepios. So when Antipas comes around, Antipas comes around, and he's a healer, and he says, don't look at this false serpent. Look at the bronze serpent, which was raised in the wilderness that saved the people of Israel, which points to Jesus on a cross. Surely they're going to kill him. You see, people would come into the temple, and they would pay whatever fee that the priests would want. And all of a sudden, it was an economic advantage, and Antipas came and said, no, no, we're not doing things that way. You want to get healed? It's not the foot of Asclepios. It's at the foot of Jesus. So it's no wonder they killed him. Right? So you can see the imagery, you can see what Jesus is doing historically now, going, oh my gosh, like, there's no, uh, there's no mystery behind why Jesus is calling them a throne of Satan. It's where Satan dwells here. But you see the big picture. Pliny, a Roman author, said, it is by far the most distinguished city in Asia. Pergamum was sophisticated, intelligent, polytheistic, fiercely loyal to Rome, and the very place that Satan dwells. The church at Pergamum, they were commended for their faithful witness because they recognized the overt attack from out there. They they recognized that this was evil and wrong, and they stood firm. And for that, Jesus said, well done. And I bet you most of us are like, yeah, man, we're standing firm against the devil. Where we can see him, we ain't letting him in. And Jesus says, well done, and praise God. 
But there's another attack that's happening behind the scenes. And it's what Jesus gets at next. And he says, but I got a few things against you. And let's read that now in verse 14. It's where Satan dwells. You've, you've, you've stood firm even when your pastor was killed, right? But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam and who, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual morality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Fascinating, when a church becomes persecuted, sooner or later the temptation is just to blend in. I don't want the pain anymore. I don't want the difficulty anymore. I mean, did you see what they did to the strongest of us, to Antipas? Did you see what they did to him? Surely, if they're going to do it to him, if his power, if his position didn't wield the yield their, their power and persecution, then surely we little ones are next. It's the same thing that happened with Jesus. When they crucified Jesus, where do we find the disciples? Locked up in the upper room, terrified that they're next. And at some point, we've got to call a spade for a spade and go, man, blending in may not be the best strategy here. So, but that is the strategy of the Pergamites, sure, and perhaps for us. If they start feathering in some of the plausible arguments of the religions around them. Now, if you were on the men's retreat, you just heard a buzzword, plausible arguments. It's what we talked about in Colossians 2, where it says, don't let anybody take you astray by plausible arguments. They sound right. They sound like they actually could be true. They sound like a reason. Okay, so if we just, if we just compromise a little bit, you're telling me we don't have to give up Jesus, but if we add maybe the teachings of Balaam, or the Nicolaitans. We're not giving up Jesus. We're not, we're not, we're not giving up Jesus. We just add a little bit here or there. Maybe take the cross off the stage and maybe not make it so overt. Maybe they won't come after us so hard. And we'll live, guys. Like Jesus wants to preserve our life. Maybe this is the way. Plausible argument. It's a plausible argument. They held fast, but they began in the heat of the oven of Satan's throne to begin to fold. Now, we've got to unpack what these Nicolaitans and the, uh, the teachings of Balaam are, but let me just be really clear. This is where every commentary goes into 75 different directions. And so there's really um, there's a lot of theory about this guy named Nicholas who could have been a deacon in the early church, and then he deconstructed his faith, and then he led others astray. All right, it's possible but if it's not, and he was just a faithful deacon, and he's in heaven looking down on us, I'd hate to run his name through the mud. Because I'm going to meet him one day and be like, hey, bro, remember that time you preached that one time? I forgive you. It's fine. We're in heaven. It's great. But maybe we could send somebody back down. I don't know how that would work, but let's send somebody to the next guy that doesn't do that. Because I like, I like Jesus. love Jesus. I don't want to do that to him. But nonetheless, there are these Nicolaitans, and Nicolaitan, or Nicholas, and Balaam both literally mean conqueror of people. When you start to break down their words, it's conqueror of people. They were trying to usurp authority over the people. So one church father says this about the Nicolaitans. They lived lives of unrestrained indulgence. Abandoning themselves to pleasure like goats. Leading a life, again, of self indulgence the way this works today is right god wants you to be happy so you do you boo 
I'm hands off. God wants you to be happy. Just, just pursue whatever makes you happy. Like Cheryl Crow back in the 90s. That was probably too early for y'all. That's the Nicolaitans, right? They're indulgent. They're trying to, to, to seek whatever satisfies themselves and self-pleasure. It goes on, and there is a parallel to Balaam, except we have biblical understanding of who Balaam was. I don't know if you're reading the Old Testament in your reading plan, but if you are, maybe you're there, maybe you've passed it, but here it is. Numbers 22 through 25, this guy named Balaam, who was a sorcerer of sorts. He, like, was a, a, a private contractor prophet, um, and so there was a guy named Balak um, who was the king of the Midianites, or the Moabites, who sought out Balaam and hired him, and Balaam was a prophet for prophet. And Balak decided to, um, he was terrified of the Israelites. He had heard of what had happened in Egypt. He had heard of all the plagues. He had heard of what all had gone on. And Balak knew, like the Israelites, God was powerful. So he hired Balaam to curse the Israelites. And so he hires him three times. And he goes away three times. And every time Balaam comes back, and he cannot speak curses over God's people. Why? Because God had indeed blessed them. And you're thinking to yourself, well, Balaam's not so bad. But we have other scriptures to, to help us understand the full picture of what Balaam did and what we're prone to. I know we're getting into like lecture college time, but just dial in. It's going to pay off. Second Peter 2 says this about Balaam. They, that is the false prophets, have eyes full of adultery. All right, I want you to start seeing this. This is not the last time that we're going to hear the word adultery or something like it. They, the false prophets, those that are, they have the pulpit. They have the authority. The church has said, love that guy. I want him to be my pastor. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Are you starting to get the parallel between the Nicolaitans? Self-indulgent, insatiable appetites. They entice unsteady souls. You see that? They have hearts trained in greed. So health and wealth and prosperity seems to be something they might push. Accursed children, Peter says, forsaking the right way, they know the right way, and they, they choose not to go down that way. This is not teachers that make mistakes in ignorance. They know what's right, and they forsake it. They forsake it for the wrong way and have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who, what did he do? He loved gain from wrongdoing. But he was rebuked by his own, for his own transgression, a speechless donkey. If you don't know the story of Balaam, go read the story of Balaam. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. That's the New Testament, speaking back into the Old Testament. Now let's go into Numbers 31, and this is what it also says of Balaam. Behold, these... On Balaam's advice, this is the sons of Israel, on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came against the whole congregation of the Lord. And you're thinking to yourself, well, what happened? So glad you asked. We back up further into the Old Testament. Numbers 25, 1 through 3. This is where the language of the Old Testament we need to hear and not sanitize it. Are y'all ready for the unsanitized version? This is what we did. This is what the Israelites did. 
while Israelites lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, that's a false god, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So here was Balaam's plan. Balaam could not curse Israel off right, but he liked the money. So he began to, keep, this is what people think, he began to keep company with Balak, and over time he said, hey look, I can't curse Israel, but if we get them to start sinning, God will curse Israel. So, if you will parade out some of your finest women, some of the finest that you have, they will fall. And they will begin to start to convince themselves, well, perhaps, you know, we could just bring this fine lady into the tent here, and, you know, maybe she could become a Jew. Maybe she could become like one of us. We'll convert her, you know, missionary dating. We'll convert her unto the Lord, and we'll all worship the Lord together. I mean, after all, God made something so beautiful, surely she can come into my home. You can begin to see the arguments that they're starting to make with one another of compromise. He didn't start off with overt cursing. No, he just came in on the side door and got you to, get, to disobey. Got you to make a compromise along the way. I will say this, that he goes in to say, eating food, sacrifice to idols, we'll unpack that in a moment, and sexual immorality. So the way this worked in Pergamum, right, is that they would go up to Zeus's altar, and they would sacrifice some of the useless parts of the animal, and then the priest would give the, the, the good parts of the animal back to the person that was sacrificing. They'd take it home, they'd fry it up, or put it on an altar, or whatever they would do at home, but they would make a huge feast over all the meat that they just got back. And when they would make that huge feast, they would invite all their friends, all their family, all their neighbors and coworkers, and they would throw a feast in Zeus's honor. And if you were a new convert in Pergamum, you had a dilemma on Friday night. Do I go to the party where I'm known and loved and they expect me to keep partying with them? Or do I sit at home bored with my no friends and Jesus? Seriously, if you've never experienced that life like early on, I remember it in college. When I party hard, partied hard with a bunch of people, and then when Jesus showed me who he was, Friday nights were really hard. So hard that I don't know that I, I, I know this. It's not that I don't know. Don't lie. Here it is. I, I could tell you stories of how I disowned Jesus on Friday. I was bored. To tell you stories. Matter of fact, I'll tell you one. How I went up to Chicago one year to go watch AM play football. That was my, we'll just go up and be fine. And then denied Jesus all weekend long. Came back, apologized to my non believing friends. And one of them said to me something that still haunts me to this day when I said, Hey, I'm sorry. I was not acting in keeping with my love for Jesus. She goes, Oh, it's fine. I just know you're confused. Oh, crud actually not confused for the first time in my life, but my life is speaking that I am confused. So you, you can see the compromise. You can see it where it hits us on Friday night, and you can see how those 
those Zeus parties would have turned straight into, and they did, a lot of sexual morality, homosexual acts, all sorts of fornication. Because what happens after a lot of booze in the middle of the night? You make real bad decisions. Is the same thing that happens in your neighborhood on Friday night? It's the same thing that happens at homecoming, students. It's the same thing that happens if you, if you don't have a car yet. And my, this is my family. We're just right up against getting a car and freedom. It's right there. It's coming for all of us. If, we hadn't, if we're not there yet, your kid could be two, and you're like, that's a long way off. We better take it now and put this little word away. It's coming. It's right there on top of all of us. If we haven't gone through it, we will go through it. It's the same thing that will happen on Friday night for everyone. But here's the deal. Sexual immorality has always been a, an avenue to create idolatry in people. Immorality continues to make way for idolatry. It is a powerful sedative against the spirit. So friends, if you are dabbling in some sort of immorality, if you're dabbling in just a little bit of sin, got my toe in, I still love Jesus, but my foot maybe doesn't. If you're dabbling in any way, the Lord is calling you back to whole hearted devotion unto him and to not compromise and to not take the teachings of Balaam and to not take the teachings of the Nicolaitans where we're just self-indulgent and go, well, Jesus, forgive me, it'd be fine. May we not be like the Israelites who hoard themselves out as the daughters of Moab. May not, may it, not it may not be adultery, but one step in that direction, if you read the book of Proverbs, what you would find is that the book of Proverbs warns against adultery, and how does he do it? He says, don't walk in the street where the adulteress lives. Because she's going to get you if you keep going down that street. She's going to call out to you. Her perfume is going to all of a sudden start to smell really nice. Just don't go down the street. The street isn't evil. It's what lays down the path. That is, and that's how we compromise, and that's the stand. Uh, that's that's the warning against us right here. In the Screw Tape Letters, C.S. Lewis says this: Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. Are you on that road? Jesus is calling you. And he has a firm warning for all of us, right, to not to repent, ultimately. And that's where this continues to go. Ultimately, Pergamum wanted freedom without Jesus, kingdom without the king, salvation without the Savior, and love without the Lord. They wanted to define terms. Love is love, right? Wrong. God is love. And so whatever God determines as love is love. And whatever God determines as not love is not love. So if Jesus defines marriage between a male and a female, then surely that is love. And I'm putting that before us because the text is pretty clear. This is a sexual crisis in Pergamum. And if we're not careful, the world around us will creep into the church. And if you don't know this, it already has. You know Joy Lutheran Church? They had to disaffiliate from their original uh, 
a denomination because the original denomination became an, an affirming denomination. You know, Faith United Methodist is no longer Faith United Methodist right here in Richmond, Texas. It's now Faith Methodist because the UMC denied biblical understanding of, the, of sexual identity. And so they had to disaffiliate from the UMC. Did you know right here in Katy, there's a church, I'm going to call it out by name because it's absolutely heinous to the Lord. First Christian Church of Katy has ordained homosexual ministers that are specifically there to minister. There, It's like the pastor or the minister to the gay community. I'm all about ministering to the gay community. If you know my story and you know how I live, you know. They're in my house. They'll, I'm happy to have them. But they also know where... Jesus stands, not where I stand, because that's not important. They know where Jesus stands, if you're around me. But it's not just sexuality, it's the little things too, right? I remember um, last week we were at a softball tournament, one of our coaches began to say all the words, you know, where you say Jesus' name in vain, and I just was like, hey, it's not his fault, why are you bringing him into this? Like, it's not, you're not his fault that, that she made an error. Like, he's, he's good. He made this place good. This is the fall, man. And she goes, oh, well, you know, he'll forgive me. And I go, not with that attitude. <laughs> and she just, right, she just went, she just giggled, and we kind of just like, oh, ha, 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 and then went away. And I was just like, but for real, though. <laughs> and so I got a follow-up conversation with her that needs to happen. Like, we cannot presume upon the grace of God. This is, this is the teachings of Balaam. This is the teachings of Nic the Nicolaitans, where we just go, oh, God will forgive us. It's fine. Surely God won't be mad at me if I do a little, boop, 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 whatever. I don't know why that just came out. just did, sorry. <laughs> My wife laughed and went, I am so sorry, on, on his behalf. She's a great woman to stay married to me. Jesus says, repent and conquer. Let's just finish with this. Verses 15 through 17, 16 through 17, pardon me. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you and soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, this is very much a repent or else passage. We don't like repent or else because we think it's anti-gospel. It's actually a full expression of the gospel that he would invite you into the gift of repentance. He doesn't have to tell you to repent. He could just keep you going down into the pathways that you're going, which is false. But God in his grace and in his mercy says, repent. Or I'm going to come with that sword in my mouth that I, that I opened up with. Remember what he says in verse 12? The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And now he says, it's in my mouth. It's his word. In Hebrews 4, I don't have to go, go and have time to go into all of this, but Hebrews 4 tells us that his word is like a sharp two-edged sword, and it cuts down to your marrow and bone, and it ultimately, God wants to use this sword as a scalpel to cut out your old heart and put in a new heart. If you will just lay on the table and repent and surrender to him, but if you will not lay on the table, the surgical precision of this sword will not cut out your heart and give you a new one. Instead, in the end, Revelation 19 says that he will come back, and that sharp two-edged sword will come out of his mouth, and he will wage war against the unrighteous and all of the nations, and, he, and they will not bow down, they'll die, because he is going to be ultimately riding in with 
a robe that is dipped in the blood of his enemies. And he will tread the winepress of the fury and the wrath of God Almighty out of Isaiah 63. It is a terrifying picture that we don't want to be on the wrong side of. Terrifying of this Jesus, of this lion that came out of the grave and said, death has no hold over me. Terrifying. And so it's no wonder Jesus says, hey, repent. If not, I'm going to come to you soon, and there's a war coming, and it's going to be waged with my word. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. Repent now and conquer. After every single one of these words, Jesus says, if you repent, you will conquer totally against the world's idea of repentance. Admit you're broken. Admit you're weak. Admit you don't have it all together. Change your mind about what Jesus came to do for you. He didn't come to make your life better. He came to call you to die so that you can find life in him. And if we will become that weak, Jesus says you're a conqueror. You're a victor. And he goes on. He says, right, those who conquer, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, look, we don't have time to get through all this. But just very briefly, the first thing he wants to give us if we will conquer is some of the hidden manna. Jesus is promising for us, if we will repent, if we will forsake finding pleasure, if we will forsake finding pleasure away from him, if we will continue in steadfastness in demonstrating his worth for our lives to be dedicated to him, if we will conquer in this way, he will give us the hidden man. It's this, it's this idea out of John 6 that truly Jesus is the bread of life. He is the manna that came down from heaven. Not just to feed them on a daily basis, but ultimately to be our daily spiritual bread. It may be a good idea for you to pray through the Lord's Prayer this week. Lord, give us our daily bread. Let me be satisfied in everything that you would provide for me, for everything that I need, not everything I'd want. Let me be satisfied in your sufficiency, oh God, the hidden manna, right? But it doesn't just go on with the hidden manna. It goes on and to say that there is a white stone with a new name. When you get to the white stone, there's at least 12 different interpretations. I can't bore you with all of them, but I'll give you a couple. One is, in the ancient days, there was a verdict, and the jury would vote your guilt or innocence by a black or a white stone. If you left the courtroom with a white stone, it meant you were innocent. Jesus has given you the white stone. Jesus has given you his innocence to a guilty party. If you are riddled with guilt, if you are riddled with shame, Jesus has come to me and I will give you the white stone of innocence. You are an overcomer now. You are innocent now. The verdict of the world and Satan's throne where he throws down verdict doesn't matter because I see you as mine and you're innocent in my eyes. It goes on to, to have other different uh, meanings with this white stone. There was this, an, a, a cultural uh, reference of a victorious gladiator. The Romans would celebrate the gladiators with a feast. And the way for the gladiator to get in was to have a white stone given to him with his name on it. And he would show that 
super cool stone at the door or the gate or whatever, and he would be invited into this feast, and it would give him access to all the benefits of that feast. And Jesus says to you, I give you a white stone with my name on it of innocence, of justified, of conqueror in Christ. And so they, not just a means of entry to a one-time uh, uh, feast for the gladiator, but instead as an eternal feast, as a marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who are rejected and lonely, Jesus is promising access to this marriage supper where we would have a feast of all feasts where he ultimately gives us a new identity. No longer your failure according to the world standards. No, you are a conqueror, more than a conqueror in Christ. God sees you as more than a conqueror, as a victor for all those who would lay down arms and follow Jesus. And so here we are. Are we compromising? Or are we conquering? And probably the answer is we are compromising somewhere. And this sermon right now is that moment where you go, man, like, I've got to identify where I've compromised this week. Where have I presumed upon God's grace? Where have I put Jesus' name on my own flesh? Where have I feathered in other beliefs? I'm not denying Jesus, but, you know, maybe we could just add in a little bit of this or a little bit of that. Where have we so become syncretistic and compromised? And where is God calling us to repent so that we can become more than conquerors? Let's pray. Our God, help us see the truth about our own hearts. No one can discover what's in our hearts. Matter of fact, the Bible says it's deceptive above all things. So right now, there's probably some people in the room who are like, man, this doesn't apply to me. I feel like I feel real good. But by your spirit, would you open up every lock, fling open every door that we've hidden from you, every nook and cranny of our hearts, would you search and seek out where we're hiding? When we think the darkness is some cover, I pray that you'd flip the light switch on in our souls and our hearts. Be like, I see you, man. Come on out. I see where you are. I see where you've run to. I see the corner where you've hidden. And I want you to come to me to find rest. Come to me to find relief. Come to me to find comfort. Come to me to find your identity as wanting to be successful or a high achiever or powerful or a high influencer or got it all together. I see you. And I love you. Help us hear the words that you love us, Lord. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but for those who are not in Christ Jesus, there is much condemnation. Wherever we stand on that spectrum, oh Lord, you know. And I pray that you bring us in wholehearted faithfulness and devotion to you. In the time of Lent, in the time of trying to listen, in the time of trying to examine our lives, Lord, be faithful. Would you speak to us? Help us see what, we, what you see. 
Help the banner of our heart be what we sang earlier. There's nothing better than you. Let that be the chorus in our hearts. And when we give in to the lie that something was better than you, help us identify, repent, return. Lord, we depend on you. Without you, we can do nothing. You're the vine. You're our life. We're grateful in Jesus' name. Amen.